Well, good evening, everyone. The the few that have come out to join us tonight, and then <clears throat> hopefully the many more that are online watching. Um, <clears throat> thank you for tuning in to our uh, monthly Signs of the Times uh, discussion, where we focus on um, the Bible and and specifically what it has to say about Bible uh, prophecy, or, or basically things that God. Uh, predicted would happen, some of which have already been fulfilled, and other things that are yet to be fulfilled, because Jesus said it was important we knew these things so that we'd understand that the time's near when his second coming was getting closer. And so um, we started this, oh man, I want to say, yeah, during COVID, we started kind of a a Bible prophecy-focused study. Uh, We went through the book of Revelation together. And we are going to complete the book of Daniel tonight, Lord willing. Two of the the major chapters in the Bible or books in the Bible that have a lot of Bible prophecy. They kind of um, uh, expound on each other or or basically clarify each other. So it's important to know both those. And then also um, doing some uh, specific topical discussions, uh, group panels. We've done that too. And uh, tonight, I'm I'm glad you guys are tuning in because it's going to be well, at least on a regular basis, the last signs of the times discussion we have for a while as um, we have some things coming up in the last couple of months where we don't have a last Thursday of the month or it's a holiday or something. And then when we go into the new year, what we're praying about, we're feeling led is to kind of um, open up this last Thursday of the month so that we're not only discussing um, topics that have to do with Bible prophecy, but really talking about um, anything that has to do with the Bible, specifically things that you guys might have questions of that you'd like talked about at a deeper level, maybe things that you don't understand or, um, you know, maybe practical things like what the Bible has to say about marriage or raising kids or, you know, practical things of ministry, whatever it might be. We just want to open it up to what we can talk about to make sure that everyone has a good understanding of what God says about things. That was the reason we started this Bible prophecy um, uh, discussion because there were, we were getting a lot of questions during COVID that showed me that there were definitely some of us that didn't have a good handle on what the Bible said about the end times or as we get closer to Jesus' return. And that's a very important thing to understand so that we're not freaking out and we're not scared, thinking everything's falling apart, but we're understanding that things are just falling into place because God is sovereign and in control and we have nothing to be worried about. Amen? Amen. Amen. So because God is so good, and he's in control, we're going to start out praising him. So let me pray, and we'll do that, and then we'll get into the word. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you so much for giving us this evening to come together in your name, Lord. We are here to glorify you and you alone. You are good, and that is an understatement, Lord. You are good in such a way that we've never seen before for your love and your grace that you've shown us in saving us from our sin when we didn't deserve it, Lord. And you've been nothing but good in, again, ways that we can't even really comprehend in all of the faithfulness you've you've shown us in our lives in keeping all the good promises in your word. And we know that we get to experience that for all eternity, and we are the luckiest people in the world for that. We're so thankful, Lord, that you love us and you're so good to us, and it is right for us to come into your presence with a heart of thanks and worship. So that's what we want to do. And so be with us in this time. May you help us, um, in a sense, set aside our busy days and everything that's going on out there so that we can 
learn from you and be equipped so that we know how to handle everything when we leave this place and look at it from the right perspective. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Louder. Amen. Amen. And we thank you for that truth, Lord. We stand here justified, as your word says, just as if we had no sin, not because of our works or anything we've done or because of our merit or any in any way we earned that forgiveness but completely by the blood of jesus you did what only you could do what we could never do and you did it willingly because of your great love for us lord we never want to lose sight of that and because of that you have won us victory just as my shirt says in this life and in the next life we know at the end of our lives, we're, we're, we're heading for eternal victory. And that's our hope, Lord. That the, the things that are so hard and uncomfortable here, those momentary light afflictions, really they don't feel momentary, but we know they are compared to eternity, Lord. That they're producing for us an eternal weight of glory. We thank you for that hope you've given us, Lord. That hope that we're constantly running towards And every second, we're closer to it than we were before. And we can't wait for that day that we see you face to face and we'll never leave your side. So Lord, may may we live eagerly anticipating that and waste none of the time we have left here using it all for your glory, Lord. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, I'm glad you guys joined us tonight. Connor's going to turn on the lights. And if you need a Bible, raise your hands. He'll get that to you too. And uh, once you have it, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 11. You know, I was just thinking uh, today, I I got the privilege of watching my son at uh, the cross country district championships today. And uh, go a story of fishermen. They won the district championships. And uh, he got a PR. He did well, too, and really proud of the team. They were kind of favored all year to win, but they, they ran strong all year, and they finished strong, and now they get to go to state. And made me a little jealous because when I grew up, I grew up on in, going to a school that didn't win so much. You know, I was taught that you have to lose to understand how sweet winning is. Well, those few victories felt very sweet because in four years, there were only a couple of them. And there was lots of losing to prepare me for those moments. But, you know, I was just watching that and I was like, man, losing, losing just, it, it's, it's one of those, those um, detrimental things in life that are a result of sin, the result of the fall. Because it doesn't feel good, right? It does not feel good to lose. And that's just part of life, you know? Like that whole mantra that, like, you're always a winner and all that. That's just junk. That's not, you're not always, you lose in life, right? That's why we look forward to the next life because in the next life, there's eternal victory. That's the whole idea that there's more than a, you're more than a conqueror because you're not trying to win a victory. Christ has already won it for you. And we get to live that out and it doesn't always feel like we're winning in life. But at the end of our lives, we will look back and see that God gave us nothing but victory. Even using those bad and hard things for our benefit. And we'll get to live in that victory and the glory of it forever. There's no losing in heaven, right? That's awesome. And we should be excited about it. You should be smiling, babe. All right? (laughs) Be excited about it. All right. So 
We're going to see some of that, be reminded of that victory um, in tonight's text. So we're in Daniel 11. Um, We're going to finish up chapters 11 and go into chapters 12. Pastor Michael taught up through verse 36 last time. And just as a way of reminder briefly, um, Daniel is given this last vision that kind of starts back in verse 10. And he's be, it's, the meaning of it is being explained to him by an angel. And as we saw in the beginning of chapter 11, a lot of the prophecy was regarding uh, a leader, uh, a specific leader, the Greek ruler uh, Antiochus or Antiochus, and people pronounce his name different, Epiphanes, and his ruthless rule um, while he was the leader over kind of like Israel and, and that area of the Greek empire. Um, so a lot of that prophecy had already been fulfilled. But what we're going to see it shift to in tonight's text is uh, this future prophecy. That was the near fulfillment of this chapter. And then there's a far fulfillment or basically there's stuff that hasn't been fulfilled yet in a, in a coming world leader uh, who we're going to see is, is what, what's referred to in the Bible as the Antichrist. All right. So um, we're going to start in verse 36 of chapter 11. And it says, and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. So this angel, he's going on to describe to Daniel who uh, this this future king that's going to be allowed to blasphemy or basically speak badly about God as in the one and only true living God. But that's only going to be allowed for a specific time until, as it says, God, a time that God had decreed or set in order. And at the end of that, basically, he's not going to be prosperous anymore. It's going to look like he's allowed to be prosperous. And then it's going to come his demise, which basically just shows us that God is in control of everything happening. You know, again, we see things happening in the world. And if we focus on those things and we don't have scripture to kind of rein us back in, we can think everything's just falling out of control. But the reality is God is in complete control. Nothing is going to thwart his plans. And same with this evil person that's going to rise up. It's going to look like things are falling out of control and things are out of control. But it's all going to be part of God's plan. And he's, he knows what's going to happen. And this is where we see this prophecy or this one thing I want to mention too: this indignation mentioned in verse 36. Um, most commentators think this describes this period of God's indignation or wrath or judgment or anger towards the nation of Israel for basically breaking the covenant. Right. A lot of his original covenant with them was conditional. I mean, there were parts of it that were unconditional, like, but there was conditional parts. Whereas if you, if you follow me and listen to my word, you'll be blessed. And if not, there's going to be consequences. And so, um, basically there's this period the Bible talks about of God's wrath towards Israel for violating that covenant, which basically concludes at the end of the tribulation, which also coincides with the Antichrist being defeated which appears to line up with this king that we see here discussed in verse 36 or the end of his prospering, all right? One of the reasons why many believe it's the Antichrist that's being talked about here. And this is where the see the prophecy kind of shift from this 
third world kingdom, if you remember that big statue Nebuchadnezzar saw that Daniel, um, the, the different materials and in, in the bottom part of it was uh, the feet, the toes were clay mixed with iron, which spoke of this resurrected Roman Empire. And um, that fourth kingdom, the third kingdom being Greece, the fourth kingdom being Rome, and then this like resurrection of Rome at the very end of time where the Antichrist would rise out of that. And so this is where it appears to shift to that fourth kingdom in their leader being the Antichrist. He's somebody basically much worse as we look through the Bible than Antichus Epiphanes. Basically, Antichus is kind of like a trailer for the feature film, if you would say, because he's even worse than him, if that's hard to imagine, but it will be like that. So some of the reasons why these verses appear to be describing someone different than Antichus are... Number one, Antichus is specifically called the king of the north. If you look back in verses 7, 11, 13, 15, I'm going to make a lot of references tonight. Don't have time to go through them all. But if you're a note taker, you can write these down and look them up yourself. Yes? Yes. Maybe somebody can get that. Um, But uh, Antichus is referred to, uh, or he's called basically the king of the north. Um, whereas this person in verse 36 is just referred to as the king, all right? So there's a different reference. And also what we're going to see in verse 40, that this king is actually going to be attacked by somebody that's referred to as a king of the north at some point during his reign. So they can't be referencing the same person. Now, another another reason that this king appears to be different than Antichus is that whereas Antichus certainly opposed God in the way that all sinners do, basically when you're in sin, you're against God, he remained loyal to his Greek gods. He didn't oppose all gods, basically just the one he was, the one and only true God, but he stayed faithful to worshiping the Greek gods. And history, history tells us that when he desecrated the temple, he basically put a statue of Zeus in that temple, okay? So he's not somebody that exalted himself and magnified himself above every God, as verse 36 says. Basically just against the one and only true God, which matters most. But having said that, he worshiped false gods. Um, Paul paraphrasing this same language in Daniel 12, 36, when he's talking about the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4, he says, Don't be fooled by what they say. For that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. Basically, the Antichrist, who Revelation 13.4 tells us will be under the influence and empowered by Satan himself will do the exact same thing that Satan did that got him kicked out of heaven. Because if you guys are familiar in Isaiah 14, 14, Satan said, I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high God. He wanted to put himself in the place of God. And that is why he got uh, kicked out of heaven, basically. His rebellion against God. And that's what the Antichrist is going to try to do as well. It says in verse 37, he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers, or to the one beloved by women. Now, this is an interesting verse. There's some disagreement among like Bible commentators and translators 
And the, and the correct way to translate this from the original Hebrew, and basically if you have a, a different translation, maybe if some of you guys have a King James, it's, it's quite different. Uh, and, and one of the reasons is the Hebrew word used here for God is plural. And it's used in different instances in the Bible to either reference the one and only true God, or it's used to reference false gods, like plural, false gods. And so the King James translation reads differently in that it says, in Daniel eleven thirty seven, neither shall he regard the big G God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. That leading some commentators to speculate, don't know for sure, but they speculate that the Antichrist could be of Jewish descent. Because if he's not going to regard the God, big G of his fathers, that is a reference to God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or it's used as a reference. Exodus 3.16 is somewhere where it's used as a reference for that. Basically referencing like the Jewish patriarchs or who they consider the fathers of their, their faith, if you will. And so some people think that. Now an argument against that would be that all of the Gentile rulers spoken of in this book of those Four world empires discussed rise up from within their own nations, which the Antichrist represented by the little horn, if you remember, uh, is said to as well rise up from the ten horns, which all appear to be Gentile kings and kingdoms in Daniel 7, 8 and 7, 24. So that would be one argument against that idea that he was Jewish. And then some way or another, all those four empires, including the Antichrist empire of all the empires, the worst they're going to be the worst. They're going to persecute. They either did persecute the Jewish people, the ones that have really come, or they, his is going to really persecute the Jewish people. So it's kind of hard for some people to believe that that persecution would arise from someone of Jewish origin. So that's another reason why people think that might be wrong. Now, something else that's interesting, the wording, if you notice, is different there in the, the King James where it says, uh, he should, nor, it says, neither shall he regard the God of his God, nor the desire of women. All right. So some, because of that, speculate that the Antichrist is either going to be homosexual or he's not going to desire women. He's going to, you know, look at the other sex or he's going to have no interest in women or normal human relationships, maybe because he's so focused on his world ambition or his ambition to take over the world. Um, again, that's just speculation. Um, but that, if that is true, that would be another difference between Antichrist, because back in verse 17 of this chapter, it said he accepted the daughter of women. Or basically the idea was that he married for political gain. And so that would be another difference if, if that was the case. But with those that believe the translation we find in the ESV to be more appropriate, they just think the Antichrist is basically whatever gods were of his father's his descent, whatever gods they worshipped, he's not going to regard them because basically he's going to elevate himself as God. And then that that part that says that um, he's going to have no acknowledgement to the one beloved by women. It's interesting because um, a lot of people believe that could be a reference to Jesus or the Messiah because all Jews, including women, were generally understood to love or desire like beloved. Jesus was the, the Messiah would be the beloved. So like the idea is he's going to give no no, no worship to any other God or Jesus Christ himself, which very well could be. I mean, we know that'll be true to some extent. So um, it goes on to say, 
He shall not pay attention to any other God, for he shall magnify himself above all. Or in essence, he will be his own God. Which sounds pretty horrible, but if you think about this, isn't this the same thing that somebody that says, I don't believe in God does? Because in essence, if you say you don't believe in God, who's the one running the show? You're putting yourself in that place of God. So it really is no different, okay? It goes on in verse 38, and it says, He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these a God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor, and he shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price, or the idea is for a payment. Now, the idea here is that basically what the Antichrist is going to live for or exalt um, in a sense, it's going to be his God is that of military might and power. Um, he's going to start out by winning people over with his charisma and his apparent wisdom and his peacemaking abilities, as we see in other parts of scripture. But eventually he's going to forcibly impose his will over the world like no other leader throughout history. And something that that's going to require is a great deal of money as verse 38 alludes to, which is basically going to be given to him in exchange for authority that he allows people to have within his kingdom. And so now we see some of those specific military conquests that this Antichrist will be involved in discussed in these following verses. And it says in verse 40, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. And I just want to point this out in these last five verses here in this chapter. It's important to understand that when it says him, he, or his, it's talking about this king that we see references in verse 36 through 39. So you understand who's being attacked here by who. It says the king of the south shall attack him, or basically this king, the Antichrist. So this king of the south is going to attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him. So this king, he's going to get attacked from the south in the north, like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he, or the Antichrist, shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through them. Or the idea is like overcome them. Verse 41, he, this is the Antichrist, shall come into the glorious land. That's a reference to Israel. And tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Or they basically, these areas um, of Bible times, Edom and Moab and the main parts of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand. Against the countries in the land of Egypt shall not escape. He, this Antichrist, shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. And he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial, or the idea is lavish, tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, probably a reference to Jerusalem. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. So at the time of the end, verse 40, we've talked about that before. When you see the end reference, it's, it's talking about that, that seven-year tribulation period, the end right before Jesus comes back. So um, at the time of the end, this is when this is happening, Daniel's told that both a king from the north and the south 
are going to form some sort of alliance and come against the Antichrist with a battle happening in or around the Holy Land. And it's hard to know exactly what countries are being discussed here. We see the King of the North represented uh, in Ezekiel by Russia, but we don't know for sure if that's what's being talked about here. Um, there's some other references in here to Egypt and some other Arab nations that maybe are there to show who it is that's attacking, but we don't know for sure. Um, but there's going to be armies, basically, that are uh, of people in the world that are going to try to usurp or, or come against the Antichrist. And he's going to have to squash those out. Some commentators thinking that um, the special recognition, if you guys are familiar with Isaiah chapter 19, 16 through 24, it talks about this special recognition given to Egypt in Assyria, which is in modern day Syria. But they're given special recognition with Israel in the millennial kingdom. And some people think that maybe this is why, because they tried to come against the Antichrist. So God gives them special favor for some reason. Some commentators also think that this battle could take place toward the the midpoint of the tribulation, right near that three and a half year period mark, as basically if the Antichrist snuffs out this defiance against him, and he comes into the Middle East and gains complete control over it he can set up his political headquarters there and there's events that we do know happen with him um that he'd have to have control for that to happen specifically revelation 11 2 says that the gentiles will be given control over jerusalem for 42 months or three and a half years which is thought to be at the last half of the seven-year tribulation period and also uh, right before that happens uh the antichrist is going to set up the abomination of desolation. He's going to desecrate the third temple, Daniel 9, 27, Matthew 24, 15, Mark 13, 14. I'll speak of this at that midpoint of the tribulation, at which point the false prophet is going to, remember there's the Antichrist, the false Jesus, there's the false prophet, and, and he's going to require all people to worship the Antichrist as God, according to Revelation 13, 12 through 15, at that midpoint, okay? And this is when the Jewish people are going to realize that they've been deceived. Remember, like he creates a peace agreement with them, and they think he's great. And then they realize when he tells them, you can't worship here anymore, you need to worship me. They're going to, their deception, their eyes are going to be opened, and they're going to rebel against him. And many will have to flee Jerusalem, according to Matthew 24, 16 through 20, to avoid this persecution against them led by the Antichrist. It's going to be greater persecution than they've ever experienced in their life. But at the end of this seven-year tribulation period, the Antichrist reign will come to an end, as verse 45 says, with no one able to help him. As Jesus himself comes back to defeat him and his armies, Revelation 19. If you guys, again, I'm making these references I just taught through that whole book like a year ago. So you can go online if you don't know what I'm talking about. But there's going to be a battle where led by the Antichrist, the armies of the world are going to be prideful enough and arrogant enough to think they can come against God. And with the word sword of his mouth, I mean, Jesus is just going to speak. The armies are going to be defeated and the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Yes. And that victory for God. And now we move on to Daniel 12. And right off the bat, here's the thing I want you to note in this chapter. Because this angel, the point of what this angel is trying to do is assure Daniel that even though these terrible things are going to happen 
to his people, the ultimate result of them is going to be victory and salvation. He wants to assure them of that, that most certainly there's going to be distress in the Jewish people's lives, but there's also going to be deliverance. The same thing God tells us, right? That's what Jesus says. You're going to have tribulation, but take heart because I've overcome the world. We know it's going to be hard, but we know that we have victory. And so in Jesus. And so that's what Daniel's being assured of here by God. It says in verse one, at that time or at the time of the end, what we saw discussed in the previous chapter or the time of the Antichrist, the time of the tribulation period, shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. Daniel's people would have been the Jews. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in this or in the book. Uh, So right away, Daniel's told that during this time of tribulation, his people are going to face persecution greater than they've ever experienced in history, according to verse 1. Jesus quoting this passage in Matthew 24, 21, where he says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. Now, when you think about the Jews and you think about history, they've gone through some pretty horrible tribulation, right? I mean, you can go back to the Bible. You see their, their defeat at Babylon and their exile. You see how they were treated under the rule of Antichus Epiphanes, as Michael talked about last, last time. You think about the Roman rule over them and the Romans destroying Jerusalem. You think most recently with the Holocaust and Hitler, right? They have just been treated horribly throughout history. And the reason for that is because the Jews are a target with a bullseye on their back from Satan. Because God has a specific plan to accomplish through the Jews. So in order to thwart God's plan, Satan wants nothing more than to destroy them, which God will never allow to happen. Because he can't thwart the plans of God's. But Satan is still going to try. All right. But Daniel's told that God's going to send the archangel Michael, an angel of authority, one who's often associated with the spiritual battle going on around us. He's some kind of warrior just protecting people. But he's basically sent to watch over the Jewish people and see that the remnant of them who basically ultimately come to the realization that Jesus is their Messiah and place their faith in him are protected and preserved and saved through the tribulation. Basically, those are the people of Israel spoken of in uh, uh, Romans eleven twenty five through 27, which says all Israel, all the Jews will be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. It's those people that place their faith in Jesus. That's who's being talked about. It says in verse two, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And this is a reference to the resurrection that's going to happen at the beginning and the end of the thousand year literal millennial reign of Jesus discussed in Revelation 20. Revelation 20, four through six tells us that the righteous who died during the tribulation will be resurrected at the beginning of Jesus's millennial reign to reign with him on this earth and experience the blessings of his kingdom for a thousand years. And Revelation 25 tells us that the wicked or those who die in their sin without placing their faith in Jesus will rise at the end of the thousand year millennial reign to stand before God 
at the great white throne judgment, according to Revelation 20, 11 through 15, at which point they're going to have to stand before God and give a, an account of their lives and prove to God that they never, ever sinned, which nobody would ever be able to do in our own power. And the result is for those that have sinned in their life, they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire or hell if they're found to be guilty to face Everlasting shame, as verse 2 says, for their transgressions that, sadly, they, they have to live with and, and can never pay for. And, and, and that's a choice that they made, basically. Now, for those of us who die before the tribulation, we're going to be caught up with the Lord. Or those of us who are still alive when Jesus comes to rapture, as we use that term in the Latin, caught up. Rapture, we're going to be called up to be with the Lord and be with him out of here for this seven-year tribulation period. And at the end of it, we're going to come back at his second coming to reign with him on this earth as well for a thousand years. First Corinthians 15, 51 through 56. Philippians 3, 20 through 21. First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. And Matthew 19, 28 through 29. All talk about that event. Goes on to verse three. And it says, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn to righteousness, like the stars forever, or who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. This may be being a reference to the hundred and four. Remember, this is a Jewish audience he's writing to, right? That's Daniel and his people. And this might be referencing the 144,000 Jewish believers discussed in Revelation 7, that basically believe in Jesus, they get saved, they get protected by God, and they get used by God as evangelists during the tribulation, shining brightly in the darkness of the world being run by the Antichrist, leading many people to salvation. But whether it's them or not, that principle displayed in this verse is applicable to every one of us as believers because wisdom and righteousness being found, is found in God and in his word and those that abide in it and lead people to it are compared to bright stars in the sky. Because that's what you do. You shine in the darkness of this world. Amen? Jesus talks about this, right? Matthew 5, 14 through 16, he says, You are the light of the world. That's you guys that place your faith in Jesus. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Just like a, a star shines brightest when it's darkest outside, that's what you do with Jesus living inside of you. Like he said in Acts 1, you will be his witness. All you have to do is be faithful. Like we talked about on Sunday, if you're just faithful, you shine for the Lord. You stick out. You glorify God. And he draws all people to himself through your faithfulness, through using you. Is that an awesome thing? And so as we see the world getting darker, that just means you're going to shine brighter. All right? It means that there's going to be more opportunities to tell people the truth. Amen? All right. Verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So Daniel is told to conceal and seal up the words of this book until the time of the end that was being spoken of in the previous verses. Now, the idea is not to keep it a secret, but rather to keep the words 
of this revelation given to Daniel by God intact and preserve them until they would be needed by future generations because they would be of importance for people to read and take note of as people approach the events actually happening and were running to and fro wanting their knowledge to increase or searching for answers regarding why are these things happening in the world and doesn't that sound like the world we live in today right as things get crazier people want to know what's going on how do i keep myself safe you know they're running true and fro trying to increase knowledge trying to increase their understanding and guess what you're here to give them the answers we have the answers right here they were given to daniel they make sense to us now and we're here to give them the answers right because the time of the end is near now one notable reason being that uh, one notable reason of, of this book being used for that purpose is to give specific assurance to Jewish people that God's promises to them are ultimately going to be filled, e- fulfilled, even if it doesn't look like that to them, which we know as they start going through these hard things, it is going to look like that. Um, and Jesus told us this himself when referencing Daniel's prophecy about the abomination of desolation from Daniel 9, Matthew 24, 15, Jesus said, reader, pay attention basically he references this chapter and he says he's talking to jews he's saying you need to pay attention to this all right basically showing that he expected them to understand at that time because he's referencing a later time he's like when you start seeing these things happening around you pay attention because this was told before and you'll know what to do basically you'll know that you need to flee this persecution he talks about that in matthew 24 16 through 21 goes on in verse 5 and then it says Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, and he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by them who lives forever, that would be God, that it would be for a time, a time is a year, we discussed that before, times two years and half a time, which would be a half year, so three and a half years, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end at the end of that three and a half years, all these things would be finished. So Daniel, if you remember back at the beginning of chapter 10, he's standing on the, the bank of the Tigris River. He's given this revelation, so he's back there. He sees these two men standing on either side of the bank. Presumably they're angels because that's who's been talking to him this whole time. And one of the men's asked a question about how long these events that he's being shown are going to happen or last. And the answer is three and a half years, which would appear to be referencing the last half of the tribulation period based off of parallel passages in scriptures that are talking about the same type of thing. So the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Some of those passages are um, Daniel 7.25 that basically says that believers are going to be allowed to be persecuted by the Antichrist for how long? Three and a half years. Daniel 9.27 says that the breaking of the covenant by the Antichrist with Israel in the erection of the uh, abomination of desolation is going to happen at three and a half years after the beginning of the peace agreement. So like the midpoint of the tribulation. Then it says in Daniel 9.27 that the establishment of Jesus' kingdom from the point that the Antichrist erects that abomination of desolation is going to be three and a half years later. Okay, uh, Daniel 12.7 says that the time of trouble for Israel or persecution is going to be three and a half years. 
Revelation 11.2 says the time that Jerusalem will be ruled by the Gentiles is three and a half years. Uh, Revelation 11.3 says that the time of ministry of the two living witnesses, if you guys know them, pretty cool dudes, they're preaching the gospel. When anyone tries to, to come against them, they blow fire at them. God supernaturally protects them. Eventually, he lets the Antichrist kill them, only for them to raise from the dead. So, I mean, crazy stuff. That They're going to have a ministry for three and a half years. Revelation 12 and 6, 12, 6 and 12, 14 tell us that the period that the Jews are protected and saved during the tribulation or preserved in the wilderness is three and a half years. And then Revelation 13, 5 tells us that the period the Antichrist will be given authority to rule, persecute, and blasphemy is three and a half years. All right. So they're all tied together. And it seems that the holy, or it's seeming that the holy people or Israel, will have been completely crushed or shattered, as verse 7 says, as these events come to a conclusion. But just when it seems it's hopeless, Jesus comes back and saves them. Amen? All right, verse 8. Daniel said, I heard, but I did not understand. And then he said, oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? I don't know about you, but I love Daniel's response here. Because I can feel exactly like him when I'm in situations where I just don't understand what's going on. You know, I know God's word, all right? But I'm still just kind of clueless or perplexed as to what's happening in my life. And I can be the same as him. As I just, I don't understand God. And I'm not the only one. Even a super holy guy like Daniel, that's like given direct revelation from God and interpretation that wrote scripture, there were hard things in his life. Even though he was given direct revelation in, in like, a first-hand of account of what explanation of what's going on, he's still left clueless at it, right? Or he's troubled by it. And so it's all right to be that way. But here's the thing. Here's the important thing to take away from this. When you're in that situation, do the same thing as Daniel and talk to God about it and pray. Because that's exactly what he does, right? And sometimes, you know, I ashamedly, ashamedly get annoyed when people ask me things that I've already told them. I have one son that sometimes just appears completely clueless because I'll just tell him directly what to do. And just a little bit later, he'll come to me and go like, wait, what'd you say, dad? Or I'll say, why isn't this thing getting done? All right, not his fault. That's just the way he's wired or something. Maybe I should have his hearing check. I don't know. But all that to say is I wrongly get annoyed with that sometimes. But here's the thing. God never gets annoyed with your questions, okay? What does it tell us in James 1.5? If you need wisdom, ask our generous God. And he will give it to you. But here's the cool part. He will not rebuke you for asking. He's not going to get angry. Even if you're like Daniel, where you're like, he's not going to say, I already told you. I, I revealed it. I explained it. What is your problem? Get it through your head. No, he's not going to do that. He's going to be perfectly patient because that's a fruit of the spirit, which is describing God. And he's going to answer it to you. And here's the thing. There will come a time where God will help you understand that's why we keep reading the Bible even when we don't always understand it like Daniel because one day it will all make sense when you really need it, all right? Ever experienced that? You read the Bible, you get nothing out of it, and then you read it again, you still get nothing out of it, and then you read it and you're like, oh my gosh, I've never seen this before. 
Because it's specific to something going through your life. You know why? Because Jesus tells us in John 14, 26, that the Holy Spirit will teach and remind you of what God has told you in his word. All right? At the right time. Even like when you think you're getting nothing out of it, God is teaching you little nuggets that he's going to pull up to remembrance at the time you need to remember and know. Amen? All right? So, verse 9. Daniel gets a response. He said... This angel, or speaking for God, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Or in essence, you've been basically, he's telling him, you've, give, you, you've got all the information you need, Daniel, to, to basically be confident that it's going to be all right. So that's all you need. You're just going to have to trust me, which is the same with us in life, right? I always like to remember that, yes, we're not given all the details, and I'm a detail-oriented person, so that's very hard for me, but... I have been given the final outcome in any situation and I've been guaranteed by God it's going to be good. And that should be enough. It should be enough. It's not always enough in my mind, but it should be. God's like, chill. It's okay. It's going to be good. You know what? If you knew the details, you probably wouldn't go into my will and you'd miss out on that goodness. So it's better you just go in blindly, okay? So that's what he's telling him. He's like, go, just keep going, Daniel. You're good, all right? You've got everything you need to know. You'll be fine. Verse 10, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, or the idea is to be saved. But the wicked shall act wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. So remember, he's talking about this end times. And basically what he's pointing out here is that, man, at the time of the end, wickedness is going to be abounding in this world like it's never been seen before. And how many of you guys see that even now? It's increasing, right? I think for me, like, the, the thing that I know, like, you know, people say, well, they've been saying forever Jesus is coming back. But I just look at where we were at like 50 years ago and look at the things that were considered immoral, that were not okay under any circumstances. They were legal in some circumstances. And now we're embracing them and even teaching them to our children, you know, at young ages saying this is good for you or this is normal. It's like this embracing of wickedness and evil. And by the way, God defines what that is. You might not think that something is wicked or evil, but if it disagrees with God, you're the one in the wrong, all right? And you can take that with God. You don't have to argue with me, but I wouldn't do it. But he's right. But this embracing of evil, just like it's talking about here, and it's going to be even worse in the tribulation. But here's the thing. An innumerable amount of people, despite that wickedness, are going to be saved, according to Revelation 9, 7, 9 through 10. There's going to be like a multitude, we can't even put a number of it, of people that even in the midst of that wickedness are going to see their need for Jesus to save them from their sin, and they're going to get saved. And it says in verse 11, And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. Now, these are some amazingly specific prophetic predictions given to Daniel here by God. And it's why I believe Jesus specifically referenced the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, 15 is a sign of his soon return. Because as soon as that happens... You can start counting days is basically what he's saying. He's saying, as soon as you see this happen, start counting the days. Now, some of you guys that are really familiar with this and you, you keep track of numbers and timelines, you might be uh, wondering why there appears to be some conflicting numbers here for what we see usually simply as kind of 
beginning of tribulation, end of tribulation, Jesus' second coming, like why are there some gaps and stuff? Well, and I think that's the easiest way to explain this. There's gaps between things because not everything's going to happen like right, 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 like right at the same time. So as three, three and a half years basically equals 1260 days, which is neither of what's given here, right? And so you have a time period here of 1290 days that's given for from the abomination of desolation till something happens. And then another time period of uh, 1335 days where specifically people are going to receive a special blessing. Now, again, the most obvious explanation is there's some gaps between some of the events that we know are going to happen after Jesus' second coming. So some commentators, ones I agree with, speculate that since we know the judgment of the nations, which Matthew 25, Jesus talks about in verses 31 through 46, which follows Jesus' second coming. If you guys are familiar what happens, there's the separation of goats and sheep. Basically, Jesus comes back, and some people don't die in the tribulation, so they have to be judged going to, as to whether they're worthy or not to go into his kingdom that he's going to rule and reign here on this earth. So they think that that is going to happen. That's going to obviously precede people going into his kingdom. So they think that's going to happen. There has to be time for that. There has to be time for this elevation of the millennial Jerusalem and the building of the millennial temple because um, uh, Isaiah 2, 2 through 3, Ezekiel 40 through 43, and Zechariah 14, 10 all talk about those events. So they think all that stuff is occurring within those seventy that 75-day period or gap between those three dates. So basically, between Jesus' second coming, which most likely will be at that 1260 or three-and-a-half-year mark, and the actual entering into the millennial kingdom of Jesus, which most likely will be at 1,335 days because that's when we'll all be blessed when we go into his kingdom, right? There, those events will happen. Maybe at that mid-mark, that 1290, maybe from 1260 or 1,260 days, that three-and-a-half-year mark, to 1290, so that's 45 days. Maybe it takes that long for Jesus to establish his government, and then it takes another literal 45 days for that judgment of all the people in the world on whether they're worthy to go into his kingdom or not. And then at that 1,335-day mark, we're all blessed that get to enter into God's kingdom. So that's kind of the thought. Don't know for sure, but that's why they think that the, those those dates are different there, or those number, time periods are different. Verse 13, it says, But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. So I love this last encouragement because basically what he tells Daniel here is like, go your way to the end. Or basically, Daniel, just keep doing what you're doing. Keep being faithful on the call I have for your life right up until the end of it, at which point you're going to pass into that next life of rest. And you are going to claim that allotted place or the idea is you're going to claim that inheritance for the rest of the saints. Basically what he's telling him is that, Daniel, you're going to make it to the end with everyone else, all right? And you're going to get to come in to that kingdom and, and, and be with me and, and receive your rewards. So just keep your focus on that because that's what really matters. And I like that because sometimes we get caught up and spend all our time and energy focusing on the details or the, the things that basically are, you know, like just scary or we don't understand when really what God tells us to do 
in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, is just run the race set before you. Just keep your eyes on Jesus. Like I complicate it. I'm looking at this and that, trying to figure out this and that, worried about this and that. And God just says, just keep your focus on me. Just be faithful. That's where you're going to be best off. And that's in essence what he's telling Daniel. Just keep being faithful. You're doing so well. Just keep going until the end. These specific prophecies wouldn't affect Daniel as he wouldn't see them in his lifetime. And God didn't want them to be a distraction to him, but rather a blessing in giving him enough information to know that, hey, not only are you going to be okay, but your people will be okay in the end. You need not worry. Just trust me. So God redirects his focus back to the right place. And the same thing happened to Peter, if you guys remember, in John 21, 22, right? Because Jesus tells him, oh, you're going to be a martyr. You're going to die like me. And what does he do? He looks at John and he's, so what about him, Lord? And, and basically, just to paraphrase, he says, it's none of your business, Peter. What's the matter if it just, just follow me? Don't worry about other people. Don't worry about other things, all right? God has to tell us that from time to time. But the thing is, every person, just like Daniel, has a way to go. And every person has an end that is coming, okay? But what matters most is that you are a follower of God through faith in his son. Because then as a believer, you also have a rest coming for you at the end of this life at which you will receive that allotted place or that inheritance for all your faithfulness in this life from God. Amen? Amen. And that's our motivation, to be faithful, like we heard on Sunday, right? With all that God has given us to do for him until he comes to get us or we go to be with him. Amen? All right. A lot was revealed to us by Daniel in this book. A bunch of specific prophecies about kingdoms that have already happened that more than prove the validity of God's word because there's no way anyone could accurately predict the future as as accurate as God or only God could do it. And so that proves the validity of the Bible. And then a bunch of specific future predictions that we've yet to see happening. Some of those are there's a world ruler who's going to come and he's going to oppose God. And there's going to be a world religion focused on the worship of him. There's going to be a world war that results in his end. There's going to be a time of great tribulation for the nation of Israel that will last three and a half years. There's going to be a deliverance of God's people after that that tribulation. And there's going to be a resurrection of the dead that involves rewards for the righteous and judgment for sinners. Yeah, dude, that's pretty cool too. I hope they have a seat from heaven to see it. But um, Daniel... He's told to seal these prophecies up at the time they were given because basically people wouldn't understand them. They were for a later date, if you will, in the distant future. But John, in the book of Revelation, was given further details about these same things. And he wasn't told to seal them up. Revelation 22.10, what does it say? God's told Sam, basically John gives him further details, and he's told not to seal them up because the time is near. Daniel's told to seal them up because it was at a time where people didn't really necessarily be able to look at these things and see the writing on the wall. But to paraphrase what John was saying or what God was saying to John when he gave him that revelation in the book of Revelation, what he was saying is that the writing's on the wall right now. You should be able to see that the time is near. That these things aren't happening, but the beginnings of them are. 
like birth pains, which it describes. They're only going to get more severe, but you can see the beginnings. And if John was being told that 2,000 years ago, how much more closer is the time now, right? We see the writing all over the wall, all around us, right? And so because of that, like Jesus tells us in Luke 21, 28, we're to look up for our salvation is near. It should get us excited. It should get us serious about our walks with the Lord, knowing that there's no time to waste that at any moment Jesus could come back. And so we got to take advantage of every opportunity to be faithful with the things he's called us to, with the people he's called us to talk to about him. So there, we need, basically, just like we use that terminology, like the boys that went running today in the cross-country race, they left nothing on that course. They gave it their all and ran that race to win it. That's what we want to be found at the end of our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. It gets me so excited, Lord. Lord, we, we, this is a real thing. We know it's true. We know you're real. We know that your word, you always keep your word. You always keep your promises. So we know you're coming back for us. And we know these things. We're not just reading about these things. These are going to happen. One day we're going to be in heaven with you. One day we're going to come back as you defeat the enemy. And you are going to set things right on this earth the way that you intended them to be. And you're going to rule and reign and stomp out sin. And we're going to experience uh, 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 what heaven's like. I mean, something we can't even imagine because of our flesh. And we're not going to have our flesh. We're going to have glorified bodies. So the, the we just can't even comprehend what that's like because of how it, it impedes our way to think even now and experience things the way you intend. But that's going to be our lives. No more sickness. No more death. No more sorrow. No more losing. Lord, we just are so overwhelmed by the hope you've given us in what's to come. And we look forward to it so greatly. We think of how quickly really our lives are in, in, in the view of eternity. And you're coming back soon or we're going to be with you one way or the other. We're going to experience it before we know it. And so, Lord, may that produce an eagerness in us to live every moment of the lives we have left here for you and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.